Hello listeners and welcome to part 2 of episode 20 of our look at Tiger's Eye. Before we continue, a content warning that this is going to include some frank discussion of depression and may include difficult topics like ideation. There will also be some spoilers for a couple episodes of Deep Space Nine as referenced a while back, details in the show notes, though the context I don't think will ruin the experience of actually watching it. With that out of the way, I welcome you to take another trip through a very specific window. Here is where I start. You, you've you've had an opportunity to talk a bunch about, in point of fact, you you've talked more about some of your anxiety issues over the course of our podcasting history together. I've mm-hmm. revealed a few things about myself along the way, but I'm I'm going to start getting a little bit deeper now than I have previously. And this, some of this is stuff that you already know. And Mm. some of it is stuff that I've hinted at, but let me start laying down a foundation as I start talking about why this ended up being a, I don't have a good word for it at the moment. It ended up being a, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 moment for me, because that's the archetype that I have to draw on from uh, from Alex's meaning. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. From, from Alex's own lexicon. willingness to be lexicon, but willingness to be vulnerable in front of the audience, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I would probably say that it's a truism that people experience pieces of media and don't always understand what it is that's triggering what what it is it triggers in them mm-hmm. um way back when we were just starting to get into tiger's eye i don't necessarily remember what the impetus was for it but i asked you to take a look at a couple of episodes of Deep Space Nine. Mm -hmm. Uh, In particular, the season one pilot and one of the episodes towards the end called Duet. Obviously, I can't explain why these episodes are important without spoiling them. So, warning now, if you have never seen Deep Space Nine... I'm going to go into detail about some of the major thematic elements to these two episodes, at least. I don't think it'll necessarily take away from enjoyment of the series overall, but because of the emotional weight of these conflicts, I need to be able to explain them in detail so that I can start talking about what those stories and therefore also what Tiger's Eye was plucking at in my brain. Um, One of the major themes of 
the pilot of Deep Space Nine centers around Captain Sisko, who we see at the very beginning has lost his wife in response to a major attack. And he spends years and years trying to come to terms with it as he raises his young son. And as the show opens, he takes on a new position as being the head of a space station all the way out in the middle of nowhere, the frontier, basically. But he it's not a position that he chose for himself. He was assigned to it, and he really wants a simpler life and one more free of conflict, uh, which, unfortunately, being a member of the military is something that is not completely up to him. Over the course of this experience, he ends up making contact with an alien race that certain other certain other species in the Star Trek universe worship as gods. And part of the reason behind this is that through their experience with coming into contact with this race, these prophets, how they refer to it, is that these aliens don't view time in a linear fashion. They bounce between moments of linear time in a non-linear fashion, which means that they learn things and realize that they know things in a complicated web that doesn't follow cause and effect. Over the course of making contact with these aliens, Cisco is confronted with the fact that just because most of the time humanity moves through life in a purely linear fashion where we can't affect the past and we can't see the future. It doesn't mean that we don't live non-linearly in some ways. These are elements that a deeper movie like Arrival would get into detail in terms of how we live, but the biggest truth about it is that this is a first step for the main protagonist of this story, Cisco, to start healing from the grief of losing his wife and being unable to do anything about it. He is stuck in stasis there, much in the way that Hrau is in stasis after the loss of Carol. So for him, much like Miguel's intrusion into her life is a first step towards dealing with some of these things and finally moving past it to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. So that's the first part in that there's a thematic resonance there between uh, that particular story and one of the themes of 
Tiger's Eye. Mm -hmm. Part two involves one of the other main characters, a woman named Kieran Norris, who, before the show started, was a freedom fighter, or, you know, put more bluntly, a terrorist that was fighting against the despotic regime of another empire that came in and basically took control over her planet in much the way that, you know, the Germans invaded parts of Europe, France, Poland, took over their, you know, major civic centers, resources, pillaged them, and forced other cultures to, quote-unquote, live with them in harmony or provide whatever resources or manpower they desired for their own sustenance and supremacy. Mm-hmm. As the story starts for the series, this alien race has gotten pushed out, the Cardassians, and the Bajorans are first able to determine their own course again, but it's a complicated struggle that's fraught with a number of difficulties along the way, not to mention dealing with the traumas of having gone through this for tens of years, living under an oppressive regime and trying to move beyond that now and not be defined by the by the traumas of the past in this episode kira comes into contact with what is ostensibly someone that was supposed to be very prominent in this old regime they actually were in charge of a mining camp which bears a lot more resemblance to say one of the concentration camps of World War II Auschwitz, Treblinka anything like that it wasn't necessarily that it turned into a place where the Bajorans were actually culled they were still it was still a place where they were you know, doing work, but in terms of the amount of trauma visited upon the workers there, the overall thematic feeling of it, when when Kira finds out, hey, this is a person that ran one of these camps, we want to bring him on trial for war crimes, as that story plays out, and she is face-to-face with what she believes is this embodiment of evil that harmed so many, little things start to not add up when further investigation happens. And what she ends up discovering through the assistance of her colleagues and her friends is that the person that they have locked up is not in fact who they think it is, that that person died years ago and someone went to the trouble of having cosmetic surgery performed on them so that they looked like 
this hateful person because he was also present in that camp when all of those atrocities were going on. And he felt powerless to do anything about it at the time. He felt cowardly, but Mm -hmm. he wanted to try and bring his own people to terms with what they allowed to happen on Bajor. And he wanted himself to be punished for his inaction by pretending to be this evil man and therefore come to some sort of personal resolution for all of this guilt that he was carrying around. The butcher of Galatet died six years ago. You're Eamon Maritza, his filing clerk. That's not true. I am alive. I will always be alive. It's Maritza who's dead. Maritza, who was good for nothing but cowering under his bunk and weeping like a woman, who every night covered his ears because he couldn't bear to hear the screaming for mercy of the Pajoras. <laughs> Cover my ears every night. I couldn't bear to hear those horrible screams. You have no idea what it's like to be a coward. <laughs> See these horrors. And do nothing. But it's his dead. He deserves to be dead. It's a very emotional episode in general. And I couldn't completely understand why it was that it was hitting me this hard. I remember watching this episode with my father a long time back and he asked me what it was that it was invoking in me and I I did my best to try and explain it at the time but I didn't fully understand what was going on in my own head that I just couldn't stop crying whenever I rewatched that particular episode um how are we doing are you with me so far yeah no i'm with you <laughs> okay i, I realized this is getting a little esoteric and seemingly beyond the scope but i need to talk about some of the feelings that came up with related media so that i can start talking about the relevant one-to-one relationship between myself and tiger's eye mm-hmm. so My parents divorced when I was five years old. And that meant that a good portion of my youth was caught up in a lot of extra drama and difficulty that I did not have control over in terms of my parents, the the fights that my parents would get into 
back before they made the decision to split up. They still loved me equally, which is good overall, but it also meant that they wanted to spend time with me equally. And as understandable as that is, and as as good as it might have been in some respects, it was also a source of upset and difficulty for me living in a world where I spent some time with my father and some time with my mother in two very different climates in terms of what kind of financial means each of them had, uh, one of them being a vegetarian and one of them, you know, loving a good steak, loving to eat meat and everything like that. Growing up alone with my mom or living with two stepsisters after my father got together with another woman and married her. Mm-hmm. But more than that, the thing that I carried with me was that I, and I'm not, you know, special in this, I associated that the reason why these two people split up was somehow my fault. That because the arguments that happened were centered around me, that there was something that I had done, even if it was merely existing, that caused this breakup to happen. And it's not necessarily something that I could even understand until I was much older after years of therapy because I pretty much never stopped having therapy since I was, I want to say, seven or eight years old. Well, Mm -hmm. okay. I I, I had, there there was a good portion of time where I went to a private therapist and then I also talked with guidance counselors when I was in elementary school and middle school and high school i did eventually stop seeing a therapist regularly around age 25 and that proved to be a mistake because uh stuff came up later on that would have been easier dealt with had i been continuing to see a therapist all that time but that's a longer more drawn out story and not relevant Although, as a further point of context, I basically had a breakdown of sorts around 2017, around the time that I had been listening to School of Movies on a regular basis. A traumatic event caused me to come to terms with a growing issue of suicidal ideation that had been building in me for years and had not been dealt with, because I had no one that I could talk to about this. I thought that it was merely an effect of periods of depression, and as long as I could keep that under control that it wasn't going to be an issue. And while things never got to that point, it was a central theme that I started addressing once I was back in therapy. My point is, is that, like you were saying a moment ago, if there was a little voice inside your head telling you that you're a stupid piece of shit, then that voice, in my case, centered a great deal around feeling like I was unworthy of love, of support, that I caused problems. And none of that 
what came from a rational place. It was something primal and elemental. And even as I was able to intellectually tell myself, thanks to people that cared about me, thanks to therapists, that that wasn't true, it was still a program in my head that I kept coming back to basically like if there was ever reinstalling itself yes yes that's a great way of putting it It, it, there whenever there was a part of my life that i feel like i really fucked up on or i had anxieties about my relationship with someone else or any negative impulses came up in me or if i just had a serious depressive fit then that is the 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 tack that the little voice would take on would be to feel like this is what i deserved because i was a bad person that deserved that and it didn't necessarily get in the way of it didn't necessarily cause problems for interacting with other people like it did in the case of bojack horseman who is always been very self-destructive but there was a self-destructive aspect none the least in terms of not being able to deal with my own stuff or merely suffering in silence because i was getting what i felt i deserved about a year ago Sharon was offering specific services to people based on the work that she had done, uh, getting her education in psychology, her degree, where she was offering to help provide therapy services on a limited basis by using a movie that specifically resonated with the person that she would do therapy with to use the framework and archetypes of that in order to help us figure out why that movie was important to us and maybe make progress with understanding what it was with that movie that was resonating Mm. in order to help us to understand what about it we were getting caught up on and whether we could use that as a tool to make progress on the things that were holding us back, whether it's anxiety or whatever it is that's causing it. And I unfortunately lost the notes that we made a long time ago on that because they were I mean, I might be able to find them again, but they were basically on an old phone and I would have to like reinstall the software in order to see if I could recover any of that. Mm. But based on some of the stuff that we talked about, the movie that I specifically associated with something that I was identified far too hard with that I couldn't get beyond because it was related to that voice that was always telling me that I wasn't good enough was the movie Memento. Um, Mm. 
Yeah. Are, are, are you familiar with that movie at all? Yes. I, uh, it's not one that I've been uh, uh, familiar with as long as other people because mm-hmm. it was one of the earliest uh, Nolan films, but I did watch it for the first time a few years back. And mm-hmm. it's as much as it is fragmented, it does stick with you. Yeah. Well, obviously, there's elements of spoilers when I'm going to be talking about this as well, but Mm. I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. Mm. I was identifying with the character of Leonard Shelby because his form of stasis is very palpable in terms of narrative conceit. He literally cannot grow, cannot learn, because he can't make new memories. Mm-hmm. He is stuck in place over and over again, trying to deal, come to terms with the loss of his wife and bring it to some resolution, even though every 15 minutes, every 30 minutes, every hour he resets and becomes this old person of himself that does his best to leave himself notes to solve this mystery that he set up for himself. But at the end of the day, keeps on forgetting the lessons that he learned and trying to understand the messages that he sent to himself through this imperfect lens. Maybe he interprets correctly and maybe he misinterprets. And there are other people in his life that are either trying to take advantage of his condition or are trying to help him, even though he won't necessarily remember their help. And the takeaway that I had from that is that if I had concerns about my life, it was that I kept having to be reminded of the things that I already knew that I had forgotten as a result of just moving on day to day, living my life and not making forward progress on the problems that were the root cause of me being unhappy all of the time. Something that I learned not too long ago is that sustained depression can affect the memory which honestly sort of helps explain a little why this was an issue. I was identifying essentially with a movie that suggests that there is no hope, that Leonard is stuck in that place and he's never going to be able to break free Mm. and those outside influences are going to continue to push at him and make things more difficult for him to make progress on those things. So there was a clear metaphor going on there that I was associating with, but wasn't really able to elucidate until Sharon helped draw that out of me. And we came to some good conclusions about, you know, unpacking all of that. I was already in regular therapy at that point again um, with someone else. So that's stuff that I built on with my regular therapist. 
but I hadn't really given much thought about that initial conversation with Sharon until far more recently when I was realizing I was having that moment where there's something vibrating in the back of my head and I understood that it had something to do with Tiger's Eye and in particular Miguel's journey. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And it's why our conversation about the story of Tiger's Eye being the story of Crow and Miguel and Haka is significant. Now, I don't have a degree in psychology. The few things that I know about it come from many different conversations with psychologists and knowledgeable people and maybe even a little bit of my fascination with mythology in general Mm -hmm. so when i start talking about some of the terms that jungian psych uses understand i'm not really using it from an informed place i'm talking about it from the perspective of these are imperfect tools which i'm using to try and explain my responses to the story of tiger's eye and the characters therein and as referenced earlier the fact that tiger's eye is built around the hero's journey and therefore jungian archetypes means that on some level this resonance is baked into the narrative regardless of my personal experience it's just a bit of fortuitous synchronicity There are, I'm sorry, were you about to say something? No, no, I'm just taking in a breath from this. (laughs) Breathe, Toby, breathe. (laughs) I'm the one that's spilling out my guts here. There are four primary archetypes in Jungian psychology. The shadow, which is meant to be reflective of the deeper elements of our psyche. It's called the shadow because it represents certain aspects of weakness and desire and instinct that have chaotic elements it's uncontrollable it's part of the unconscious and can include repressed memories and ideas and emotions that we have difficulty coming to terms with we have difficulty talking about and integrating into our lives there's what is referred to as the anima or animus which it's for those of us that are identify as one gender, this old outdated modus is meant to suggest that this other part of ourselves is the opposite binary of that. If we are male, then we have an anima. If we are female, then we have the ananimus. And there are certain positive qualities that we associate with the other gender that are a part of our makeup that is an influence on our life in Freudian psychology it has similar aspects to describing the conscience one could say there is a combination of self that comes with that that part of our personality that is the anima or animus 
and the part of our personality that is the self. All of these things are combined to be part of the self, the shadow, the anima, and a fourth term that's you that's referred to earlier as being the persona, the mask, which is meant to be a representation of all the different social masks that we use in different situations that we use to protect the self by putting on a representation that will get us through whatever social instance we are currently dealing with. Mm-hmm. For a while, I was trying to understand if the primary characters of Tiger's Eye fit into those archetypes. And the more I looked at it, the more I realized that there was a definite symbiosis, a definite synchronicity going on there. If I associate Corral with the self, myself, then the fact that she is, that we are introduced to her in a moment of paralysis, of stasis, where she keeps on going from day to day and being unable to deal with the traumas of her past, but at the very least able to just keep going, just like Spencer talked about. And we can then potentially associate the anima with Miguel, which when I first thought about making these comparisons, it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. But I needed to get away from the idea that the internal part of the self needed to have a specific gender identity. I mean, in the modern age, that just feels outdated in general because, you know, we need to feel free to be our truest selves and not tied to any one gender representation in order to feel comfortable with ourselves, whether you're male female, non-binary, or trans, and therefore discovering that you have a gender identity which is not the one that you were assigned at birth, all of those things are equally valid. And so therefore I can't go and then say, oh, well, this aspect of the psyche needs to be a woman or it doesn't make sense for me. No, that's... move beyond that limited understanding and see that Miguel is or could be representative of positive aspects of myself that I don't always give free reign, I guess you could Mm. say. Mm. Building on that a little bit further, I would add that I always tend to think of the most positive aspects of myself are ones that culture would associate as more feminine to begin with. So the idea of the outer self being somehow female and an important part of the inner self being male almost makes sense in that regard. I wouldn't say this makes me not cis, because I have never felt specifically dysphoric in my body type. Maybe I have body issues in general, but I don't think either identifying as female or even as non-binary would somehow make those go away. I've given it serious consideration, and my truth is coming to terms that I am male is important for my wholeness of being. 
being satisfied with who I am, even if culturally most men have qualities that I find repugnant. I need instead to be a better representation of maleness rather than denying my maleness. And so the natural outgrowth of that is then taking a look at Haka and asking myself, is he the representation of the shadow for me? As we have dived in deeper with describing Haka, the parallels there did seem to become more and more distinct. Because his journey is very much one of holding himself back because of a perceived notion of how he thinks he should be. He appears to the audience as being this implacable, dangerous, violent, opinionated person that is a very real threat to our heroes that we associate in Rao and Miguel. But it's only as a result of his story finally getting a proper look into why he is the way he is and having him come to terms with his complicated relationship with Rao and Miguel and realizing that he has been a fool this entire time, that sort of crystallized everything for me. Hmm. Editing this now and having read Panther Soul, I feel like I also have an addendum to this overarching idea of Haka as the shadow. Understand, I'm using these Jungian concepts as tools. And as previously mentioned, they are imperfect tools. Back when I was using Memento to frame my psyche, I used the characters of the movie not as direct correlation to archetypes, but more as representations of general parts of my mind. If the fractured selves or personas of Leonard were the self, then Teddy was the voice that tried to steer me back towards functionality, towards doing the right thing. And Natalie was something darker. She could be protective of me because she was a part of me, and because protecting me served her interest. But she also pushed me in directions that were not helpful, that sated urges that were not good for me or my relationships with others. In Tiger's Eye, this idea is represented by something else. It's represented by Beatrix. The one who does what she needs to in order to survive, even if it's the wrong thing. The selfish thing. The way she talks to Shearer lends weight to this. And the way she still nurtures the innocent in me. She tries to take care of Miguel, who represents the boy that I was. And Miguel is the voice that more gently guides me towards wanting to do the right thing. Beatrix is not good for me, but still supports me. Haka, however, is the voice that blames me, that drives me because it tells me that I am still bad, and that I need to be less bad than I am. It's a much more self-destructive urge, 
because as I get into, Haka thinks on some level that I should not exist. One of the thoughts that I had in regards to Miguel being willing to lay down his life to Haka, I was making associations there in terms of if Haka is that voice in me, the one that feels that I should be punished for no good reason other than it's a representation of who I am. Mm. Because that's where Haka is coming from in regards to Miguel. He wants to destroy Miguel not based out of any rational argument. He wants to destroy Miguel because of what he feels Miguel represents. It's all mm. instinct. It's all self-destructive. And he can't admit that until he is finally able to get beyond his own insecurities and difficulties and self-actualize that he needs to change. Mm. And I think I'm going to be continuing to understand this and process this for myself. But if I look at Haka as being this untidy part of myself that unreasonably hates another part of myself but can come to make peace forgive then maybe yeah then maybe I can finally learn that lesson myself. That I can... That I can integrate the Haka inside myself and the Miguel inside myself and the Hrau inside myself and that I can move into the rest of my life and stop building roadblocks for myself in terms of making the progress that I want to make and being the kind of person that I want to be and doing the work that I want to do. Thank you, Greg. I, there's nothing I can add to that. I think that uh, I'm really glad that we could all be here to just take part in this journey that you've gone through with this. But I think the one thing I will add 
as a small gesture that I know pales in comparison to the progress and to everything, to the realizations and just everything. But it it feels like it's a non sequitur from what you said, but I'm very glad that numerous things brought us together, whether it's was our shared love of New Century or both of us feeling a compulsion to express, share, reflect, well, reflect and share that with people. And Alex sort of putting those introspective journeys in alignment with one another. And it's because you're my friend and you've been a very valued and treasured friend in what has been, I think, a shared, difficult and tumultuous time for so many people. But even if the world was in a more stable place, even if everything was, we were in a place that things were at its best, I would still be very grateful to know you and to go on these journeys together. I'm so glad that I get to see the effect that this story that we love and a lot of other people love can bring for you. That is, I think, the ultimate hope of people that create stories like this is that they hope that they can have the profound effect to create something that other people can take with them, I think. Mm -hmm. It's complicated, (laughs) and it's messy, and, you know, you can't always predict when you're going to have an emotional connection to these things and you're not always going to know what it is but Alex has always done his best work by writing stories that aren't just about themes that he wants to discuss or express or explore he writes about things that are personally relevant to him and that's the truth that comes through in his writing it's part of what drew both of us in and by the same token that emotional honesty I think, is a major contributor to people being able to find their own significant truths in a resonant story. I I can't speak for anybody else what they are going to take away from Tiger's Eye or any other piece of work in the New Century oeuvre or any other work at all. I can't even control what people get out of Toby and I talking about our truths. We certainly hope that they're relevant to our listeners. 
that they are not just fits of self-aggrandizement. But then, I'm just following in the footsteps of Alex and Sharon in this, giving something back to what they have shared since I started listening to them, and becoming better friends with them along the way. These journeys are always very personal, as I have expressed for myself. It's what I was relating to is connected with the journey of Tiger's Eye, but I basically had to tell you a whole bunch of other personal stuff in order to get to that place where all of that makes sense, both mm -hmm. to myself and to you and on all other listeners, basically. Mm -hmm. And very glad you did. <laughs> thank you. I mean, the work, <sighs> the work is ongoing and, yeah. you know, it's an individual realization is not the master key that will make everything better necessarily mm. but like i said before you know it's um it's another step in the process it's another mm. tool it's another notch that i have to my disposal to draw upon and remember and work with as i move into the rest of my life i think the important thing here, if nothing else, is that if Memento was a representation of the fear that I would somehow never be able to overcome these self-destructive impulses that I felt were holding me back, then Tiger's Eye is the counterbalance to that is the argument mm. to be made that mm. we always have the power to work on ourselves and that it's not set in stone mm. the hope of new century is the hope of tiger's eye is the hope that I would strive to kindle in myself and in you during these, as you say, difficult times. These personal realizations would have always been important because it's relevant no matter what else is going on in the world. But it's also true, as you say, that the everything else that is going on is part of what makes it difficult to do anything else. It mm. wears away at our resolve, at our energy, and makes it so sometimes all we can do is just make it from moment to moment, hour to hour, day to day. And somewhere in that self-sustaining, try to find the strength and do the work and whatever it is we can to keep not just existing but moving forward mm. and i think that is 
the perfect place for this book to be closed. Yeah. I don't I don't think I have much else to say and we've already talked uh, for a long time. Yeah. I'm so glad that I can say this because when we started Tiger's Eye, I thought like I'm so excited, but how the hell do we like you know give this what it deserves? And I think the answer is always is to give us what we need. Mm. And that was a chance to talk and for you to talk here. And Tiger's Eye has, as I know it will again, done a lot of good. All right. Yeah. Uh, Well, to all you listeners, thanks for coming on this journey with us as well. I will have put in a warning that there is difficult content ahead, or mm-hmm. maybe I'm just... Obviously, this is very important to me. I, I don't necessarily I, know if it will be triggering to anybody else. But... I think this deserves to be a like a standalone final kappa to the series that everything you've been discussing with us today is could be its own episode that we close on but oh no no no. i i may well like may have it as being one episode i'm just talking about in terms of like warning people about how deep we get here emotionally yes yes 100 percent. but in the meantime uh when you're done listening to this episode which as we just implied may i may just put out all as one because otherwise there's no good breaking point um we will finally be returning to centrum as we discuss first the cartographer's handbook and then arlington which honestly the two work together the two work together very well because it's all part of the story of one thomas arlington the man who is set into po- the man who has set into motion a hope and an idea for a better America as mm-hmm. it recovers from tragedy, and it's going to be complicated and it's going to be messy and there's mm-hmm. going to be some racial stuff, and as always, we are going to do our best to yeah. move forward and do it. Yeah. Uh, so join us for the. Political, cultural, social machinations of the reunified states of America in season four of Through the Window. Window, fuck! (laughs) 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 Oh, that was almost so smooth. Yeah. Almost so smooth. (laughs) Um, I would say that was an intentional uh, moment of levity, but uh, you know what? So, are you so, sure? Are you sure it wasn't? I don't knows. know. I yeah, <laughs> the world knows. will never know. Stay wild, tigers. Oh god, I hate that sign off. We erase that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. We're stuck with it. <laughs> At the last moment, we tripped up. No, I tripped up. <laughs> we'll see you next time on another trip through the wind door. Take care. Well, that put us all through the emotional ringer. 
Much thanks, as always, to Toby for being my Steve Rogers on this journey, to Alex for being my inspiration, to Sharon for being my Merlane, and to all of the White Scarvengers for their contributions along the way. With all luck, the next trip through the wind door should be the interview with Maureen, followed by News of the Century Panther Soul Edition. And then finally, as mentioned just a moment ago, Season 4 of Through the Wind Door. There will be some outtakes at the end, if you need a humorous release after all this. I was originally going to end with my own rendition of Vincent by Don McLean, which I recorded on Impulse back when I found an instrumental of the song to use as mid-roll music many episodes ago. But I instead decided to release that separately, so that if people don't want to hear me sing, you don't have to. In all likelihood, you'll already have heard it on the feed before listening to this episode. Instead, let me end on a poem written by someone near and dear to me. To most, she was Polly Guild, a Unitarian Universalist minister with a beautiful voice and deep wisdom. To me, I called her grandmother after she became a part of my family when my father remarried. This is one of her best works and I keep it framed on my wall as a memory to her life. This is Meditations from Star Island. I wish I were like a rock, sturdy and strong, enduring, polished smooth by the forces that beat against me, a safe resting place for storm-tossed souls. Sometimes, I am. I wish I were like the waters of the sea, flowing and yielding, perfectly spitting the space that I'm in, reflecting the changing sky, but deep and still within the depths that nurture myriad forms of life. Sometimes I am. I wish I were like the sun, bright and warm and life-giving, Shining even when the clouds hide me from view, ever faithful, rising and setting in predictable ways. Sometimes I am. I wish I were like the clouds, light-hearted, wispy, multi-shaped in a clear blue sky, or a soft gray with balm for a parched earth, occasionally dramatic, rolling and angry, demanding attention. Sometimes, I am. I wish I were like the wind. Fragrant, cool, gently caressing you, blowing soft and sweet over wild roses. Or forceful and persistent, holding high an aspiring kite and filling the sails of those who travel life's precarious ways. Sometimes, I am.
I think that it's sounding okay to me. And uh, Alex, if uh, our microphones are driving you crazy, <laughs> then uh, apologies. Um, we'll 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 do it live, I guess. In comparison to some of the early episodes, I feel like everything that I do more recently has more of a not necessarily production value associated with it, but I have a better sense now of what to cut, what to leave in, that we have gotten better at doing our best to be as concise and streamlined as possible, getting to the point and everything like that. Although maybe not, because now that I think about it, in the old days, we managed to, you know, cover the amount of chapters that we needed to do in a two hour session. And now we're taking three I... sessions, six hours to talk about five chapters. <laughs> I, uh, as we mentioned before, I think that different books will engender different amounts of like you know, discussion and stuff like that. It'll be, yeah. each thing needs to be its own thing. But we have words to say on Tiger's Eye. We will close the book on this jungle book for now. But yeah, uh, yeah I'm, whew, I, I, I do go into this with a certain amount of trepidation because it is the like, okay, let's, what are your conclusions on Tiger's Eye? It's like, uh, hmm, uh, this, this is, I, I like the purple tiger good book words lots of words like the words words good <laughs> the thing that i was reacting to here was reading the notes that toby had sent me just prior to us starting skype and there was a joke that he implanted in the notes uh in regards to the characters that most influenced him i like just briefly looking at some of the sting <laughs> Oh dear, sorry. Uh I just What's got up? to the I got to the King Louis part. Uh I was not <laughs> expecting that. So mm -hmm. without further ado, let's get into it. Absolutely. Okay. Water. Air. Long ago the four nations lived <laughs> together in harmony. Stop! Stop! <laughs> Come on. Okay. Mm. Uh, it's like, hey, do you want to start the race? Sure thing. Why did you trip me up immediately? <laughs> also, doesn't it start with earth, earth, water, fire, air? Oh, okay. Look who's watched the series <laughs> recently. <laughs> oh. Toby, things can't be very unique. That, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't, mean to, be, I didn't mean to be pedantic or anything like that. Greg, this is the first time in our recording that I have done a literal fuck off. <laughs> uh. Saying this, I am like in my head now wondering what the uh, team Steam will look like as uh, Phantom Thieves. Oh, dear. That's a completely separate uh, question right there. Yeah. I no, am I... thou. Thou art I. <laughs> that a hundred times. Yeah, exactly. Right before your eyes, watch oh. a spot of blood. Sorry. <laughs> you realize at some point that I'm just going to have to have you sing one of the songs from Persona 5 and have that be the outro to one of our episodes. You know that, right?
Mm, I mean, <laughs> it, it will be a surprise. Uh, you could say, you'll never see it coming. <laughs> well, maybe we'll wait until we've got you a proper Yeti, Mike. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sorry, listeners. You never see it coming.